When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 33 in our series for 2020. And today's date is Friday, the 18th of September. First, I'll be talking to New Jersey marketing specialist Josh Meir, and he'll be talking about the crisis facing many small businesses, and he'll give tips for helping your business stay afloat through marketing. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about how we will manage the recession and how the government should handle the budget. But first, let's talk to Josh Meir. Well, Josh, uh, we're now in the middle of a pandemic and businesses are going bust and the economy is going downhill and companies need good marketing campaigns to attract customers in this climate. What what are your recommendations? So I think that there there are a number of perspectives and action steps that are worthwhile for companies to consider. First, in terms of perspective, I think recession and certainly depression-oriented environments create a need to understand the market drivers for a company. So what actually drives consumer behavior in a given market for an organization? Usually that comes down to data. And right now, from a digital marketing standpoint, because I do think that's especially relevant given social distancing, right, making use of all digital marketing assets at hand, there's a tremendous amount of not just data, but there's a tremendous amount of models that businesses can rely upon to figure out how to make use of that data. 
in my opinion, I think that all organizations should try to understand the e-commerce model. And that is sort of a, a novel perspective for a lot of organizations that are used to even just sort of brick and mortar style relationships, in-person meetings, and so on and so forth. However, the e-commerce model is based on the premise that if you spend money, you can trace it to its impact, which is presumably revenue. And the e-commerce model is premised on the ability that you can take a single product and actually identify if you spend X advertising dollars, you'll receive Y revenue, not just on a product basis, but you'll be able to trace it back to all the individual campaigns that actually yielded that product outcome. So what does that mean for businesses at large? Well, let's say you're a services organization. If you own an accounting firm or a law firm, or you even have a restaurant or what have you, all organizations can at least track leads in this environment. And you can at least track what generates a phone call, what generates an email, uh, what generates uh, some point of contact. And being able to evaluate the cost financially of generating that contact is a model that I think organizations need to have in place. That's actually quite an interesting concept because you're saying then that every business, whether it's a, even if it's a law firm or a restaurant or a, or a bar, needs to think of itself as an e-commerce business. Is that right? That's exactly Exactly what I'm saying. And, and, I, and I'll even tell you how that, that is put into practice. So on a very practical level. So, so, so let's say that, you, that, that an organization is a law firm. And I'm going to consider the law firm as just sort of a model of a service organization, let's say. So we could be talking about any number of service organizations. But in the realm of just talking about a law firm, if, if you, let's say, track the cost of a lead from something as simple as a Google Ads campaign and actually attribute properly which phone calls came from that Google Ads campaign, you can actually figure out which contacts were generated from that campaign and follow it all the way down the line to the point where that client actually delivers revenue. And frankly, that's what more sophisticated service organizations are doing is that they're analyzing their client base, bringing it all the way back to their advertising so that they can say the amount of revenue generated from this campaign was this. And being able to actually ascertain that revenue was generated from a given campaign that allows you to optimize advertising itself. So yes, my argument is that every organization should seek to become modeled conceptually similar to an e-commerce one. And, and you mentioned a bar, for example. So at least in the United States, social distancing is so strict in many states that we really are talking about delivery services and takeout and so on and so forth. Well, let's just take a, a very popular service in the States, DoorDash, or even Uber Eats. Both of these services have an actual menu on the platform from which people place orders. So all of a sudden, previously, whereas people visited my restaurant and they ordered a plate of whatever it is that they wanted, now they're actually ordering it online. So I actually have a sense for if I optimize the image of this product through this platform, I can increase the conversion rate. And as a result, I can sell more of my product. And when you consider the fact that even restaurants are taking product and delivering it to people and they're selling it based on a pure visualization of the product, it's exactly what e-commerce does. In fact, you can make the argument that restaurants are like local e-commerce for food at this point. And if they were to simply think of themselves in that way, they would find ways to optimize their conversion rates, optimize their cost per lead. They would figure out how to use different campaigns in order to raise attention because they would be able to track attention at the top of a marketing funnel all the way down to the bottom to orders, sales, and deliveries. What are the other strategies? So there are a lot of different strategies that I think companies 
ought to consider. A key strategy is without actually implementing new marketing campaigns is to really focus on the existing customer within their current client base or customer roster that is still buying. Find out who those people are through an actual analysis of your customer, whether that means you speak with them or you send out a survey, figure out who your best customers are now because there's a good chance they have something in common with each other. There's some reason why that demographic of your client base or customer base is resilient to this environment. And then once you've figured that out, now you have a persona, right? An archetype, a concept from which you can develop future campaigns to find similar people to that. And beyond that, I think another key approach is to figure out what are all of the services and products within your repertoire, because many of the ones that weren't as popular before may be more relevant now. So I'll give you an example. So accountants, which were maybe used very typically for payroll and tax preparation and still are, have an extra service value right now when it comes to strategy consulting, specifically because there is such a high velocity of legislation that is passed that directly impacts how companies manage their finances that accountants are making more money if they make sure to promote their old strategy consulting service that is specifically around the right way to manage your finances given a complex situation. So two strategies that don't cost firms anything is simply to identify your current best customer, which is different from your previous best customer. And second would be to redeploy relevant services that people could use right now given the context. And one other thing that I'll mention is that tactically, another type of service that doesn't cost very much or only costs something more nominally would be email marketing. Email marketing is far more valuable, I think, than people realize. And to to stick with the analogy that I used prior about all companies operating with the sense of an e-commerce organization, that has implications for how organizations understand email. Here's what I mean. Email is an asset. I think most organizations know that. The size of a relevant, engaged email list can directly translate into revenue, meetings, inventory. I mean, any number of things a business needs can be directly traced to the quality and size of its email list. There are many other assets. Email is one of them. The key aspect of email though, is that the cost of sending more emails or increasing the size of an email list is so nominal that if you can both find ways to efficiently increase the size of your email list and improve the quality and attractiveness of your message, you can actually find growth incredibly profitable growth in this environment, regardless of the type of organization you are. So if you're an organization with a small customer base that buys high ticket purchases, you can reach out to them on a repeated basis. If you have a huge list of people that spends a very small amount of money, you can find a lot of purchases that are worth a lot of money. So email is incredibly valuable. And uh, there's a lot of other, a lot of other things that people can do as well. So services like, say, Mailchimp would be quite critical. Uh, I, I think that organizations uh, benefit from actually looking at the different email tools to figure out uh, the the style of email that's correct for their industry. So, uh, so Mailchimp, for example, would be an example of of a very graphical interface. But some organizations that focus on B two B communications are not looking for graphics; they're looking for more personalized messaging from an executive to executive level. Right. So, I, I think that this is an opportunity for folks to to really, and this, again, kind of going back to this 
e-commerce mentality. What are the toolkits available for me as an organization to solve a particular problem? And I think different email tools solve different problems. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. So the key then is uh, for these organizations that they have to actually deliver more value and they have to build their brand. I completely agree. I, I think that, that that brand is a key concept that a lot of organizations uh, need to understand better. Most organizations conceptualize brand as something that, or at least the smaller ones, or even the larger ones sometimes, but they conceptualize brand as just sort of an aspect of corporate behavior. But they miss the strategy aspect of what brand actually does mechanically in the market in the marketplace. So here's the difference between branding and sales. Sales is transactional. Sales directly yields revenue. Branding is in the service of relationships. Branding is how you build a relationship. Sales is how you close a transaction. Companies that invest in brand are investing in becoming clearer to the marketplace, becoming more visually coherent and therefore familiar and trustworthy. They become more easily understood. All of these, ad, they become easily, it's easier to refer a brand that's clear and compelling. A brand that has a point of view is one that you think about more often. So the exercise of branding is a practical exercise in clarity and concision and, uh, and attractiveness and identification of how to build a relationship with a prospective market. And sales closes the deal. So any opportunity now to build brand, visual and message cohesion is going to support a strategy that yields ultimately to the most profitable form of sales. Well, well Josh, that's very informative and very important. And I'm sure a lot of businesses will be listening to it very closely. And thank you very much for your insights. It's my pleasure, Leon. And I appreciate the insights that you deliver on a weekly basis. Uh, you do you put in a lot of work to, to constantly navigate the landscape of uh, business facts and people need to know. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Economist, Alex Joyner. Well, Alex, the scale of initial economic shock caused by the COVID-19 crisis has become clear with the release of the June quarter GDP data across the globe. Many countries have suffered the steepest fall in output since official records began. Almost all are in recession. In particular, there's been a worrying resurgence in COVID-19 cases in several countries. That would suggest that fiscal and monetary stimulus will likely need to remain in place for much longer than we initially thought. What's your view about that? Yep, that's a, that's a pretty good take on, on just where we are right now. The June quarter figures came out for Australia for GDP, and, and we had a 7% decline in the Australian economy, and that was around about what markets and the RBA had expected for a relatively good result on the international comparison. So the, the median decline of countries that have reported so far, and that's basically almost everyone except New Zealand, has been for a 9.7% decline in the June quarter. We saw some really surprising numbers out of, out of economies like the UK that went back 20.4% in the June quarter. Uh, the Spanish economy went back 18.5%, but even countries like Germany down 9.7%. So Australia's performance, while the worst on record, as you say, the worst since the Depression, was actually relatively good when you compare it to that international experience. And that's a function of the structure of our economy, but also just how COVID-19 was transmitted and, and passed through the economy and, and the restrictions that then were enacted by governments. Now, on the World Bank's reckoning, around about 93, 94% of the world's economies are in recession right now uh, in 2020. And that compares with, say, the GFC experience, where around about 75% of the world's economies were in recession, and we thought that was bad. And then you have the Great Depression, where around about 
80% of the world's economies were in recession. So that really puts it in that historical context. And, and on the World Bank figuring, uh, its forecasts for 2020 have the global economy going back by about 5%. And again, to put that in context, that is around about two and a half times larger a decline than we saw globally in the in the GFC. So that's really what we're what we're dealing with here. And, and that's why we've seen fiscal and monetary policy makers do so much. And the implication is, like you say, with second waves and the virus still being a concern and not having that vaccine there, that policymakers will have to keep this accommodation uh, in place for an extended period of time. I think it almost goes without saying for central bank, um, most economists can't envisage a situation in the next two to three years where accommodation would be removed. And then it falls to fiscal policymakers to see what they can do more. Now, that's uh, easier said than done in, in many countries. I give the example of the US where it's actually quite difficult and politically polarizing to, to get fiscal stimulus through. And that's that's concerning for those economies. Coming back to Australia, it seems like we're trying to wind back a little bit on things like JobKeeper and JobSeeker. But I think in October's budget, you know, we're really going to see the government have to recommit to both labor market support because the unemployment rate will still be high and also to, to figuring ways that it can stimulate the economy. And this, this is likely to come in the form of uh, household tax cuts in the Australian context. And then there'll be a lot of talk about infrastructure spending and these sorts of things at the state level that can continue that, I guess, public sector-led uh, growth narrative that we have while the private sector recovers and restrictions start to lift. Well, there'll be lots of infrastructure money in the federal budget, but that shouldn't detract from the fact that the economy is actually in need of, uh, as we've discussed before, about ongoing reform, for, particularly for productivity. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, in the first instance, we need support for the economy and, and, and stimulus. And, and, you know, it's no good for the, the and, and I guess the, the lifting of restrictions uh, in the public health case because it's no good for most businesses to have infrastructure spending when they're still closed down and you know we really need to try and encourage people once the restrictions do lift to go out and spend and that's where the tax cuts start to come in but as, as you've said you know infrastructure is a long dated uh, form of economic stimulus so that it doesn't just come in it, it makes planning and it takes place over uh, over many years and then we also need the reform agenda side and this is it's interesting, uh, uh, you know, you talked around the Japanese context and, and the Japanese Prime Minister Abe stepping down. Uh, and a lot of talk about Abenomics at the moment and the legacy there. I think Japan's biggest export will actually be Abenomics. These, these three arrows of ongoing accommodative monetary policy, ongoing accommodative fiscal policy, and then that third arrow, the reform agenda. That really needs to be focused on going forward if we are to get the best out of economies and we're able to recover to a rate of economic growth that we have become used to because, you know, as we've seen out of the global financial crisis, economies are structurally producing less growth. There's uh, demographic headwinds, there's productivity headwinds, and there's investment headwinds. And we need to sort of change that dynamic coming out of this crisis if we're get, going to get back to trend rates of growth that we're sort of used to talking about as economists over the long term around about 3%. If we're going to get anywhere near that again, we need to have that productivity and reform agenda um, set in stone and, and have some certainty around that and have that driving growth going forward. Well, the other issue too is that uh, the post-COVID economy will be very different. For a start, they won't be, people won't be able coming into Australia for at least another year. So uh, we can forget about immigration driving our economic growth. We can forget about China driving our economic growth. And house prices are heading the other way. So we, we're going to need a completely different budget stimulus for the economy, would you say that? Yes, uh, I guess all the tailwinds that we've had 
uh, in the Australian economy uh, leading into the COVID-19 crisis uh, have now turned to have now turned to headwinds. Uh, you talk about population growth. You know, population was adding around 1.5 percentage points to Australian economic growth every year. Uh, that was our that was our starting point. It was very difficult to envisage a recession when you come from a starting point of just having people there. But I, I think the point there is the economy was being driven by more people and not effective policy. You know, we're just we're just growing organic, you know, organically by basically importing labour, which is what we did. Now that we can't see that coming back for an extended period of time because we're having enough trouble discussing borders in Australia being reopened, let alone international borders, and and just how that will take place. Then there's the pressure from from China. Obviously, the the relationship between Australia and China has has deteriorated over the over the space of, of, of recent months, but it's something that's been happening for an extended period of time, and and it's being exacerbated by this crisis. So we can't automatically assume that a lot of the international students nor international tourists will come back to the Australian economy, even when things do open up. So that's going to be a structural change to the economy where we've really been relying on that net services contribution to the economy for for some time that's not really going to come back and and the people in those industries you know that will have to structurally change there'll there'll be less people in those industries you know the major airlines have talked about their capacity being reduced for an extended period of time just because we won't have that tailwind from china now we seemingly can always sell our sell our resources to china in terms of iron ore and coal but there is some difficulties around you know the the agricultural side and and there is those trade tensions between Australia and China. I think they'll only get exacerbated by what will come out of the US election, which is either a Democrat or Republican victory. They both have similar views on China and how to deal with China as a a global player and a global trading partner and a global partner in technology. So there's these ongoing pressures that that we'll see in the geopolitics, even when when the COVID crisis starts to dissipate in terms of its economic effect, you know, I think what we'll see is the re-emergence of those trade tensions and Australia is sort of a loser and not a winner in that scenario. And of course, we've got house prices, which are, which are heading the other way. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, house prices, obviously, it's uh, you can't talk about economics in Australia without talking about house prices. I think there's some some modest good news on, on house prices. Now, we don't have that tailwind of, of demand from population growth, and we certainly don't have the demand from investors. Investors have been very cautious in this market and justification for that. But we are starting to see with some of the lifting of restrictions, some of the states uh, outside Victoria and the capital cities therein start to stabilise a little bit. So we're seeing not house price growth, but certainly less rapid house price uh, decline. And Sydney is probably the, the, the major market there. And we're starting to see in housing finance approvals numbers over recent months, quite a bit more interest in the in the most recent months data for July. Uh, owner-occupier housing finance approvals rose for the most seen on record in those data. So uh, you can expect some sort of stabilisation in markets. I don't think with the economic uncertainty that still pervades people's thinking that we'll see a, a rapid recovery, but certainly stabilisation in, in uh, house prices outside Victoria. Melbourne house prices uh, have already started to diverge. You know, pro- property prices are sort of falling about 1.5% per month, according to CoreLogic data, where they're starting to stabilise in, in, say, the Sydney market, falling sort of 
you know, three to four uh, percentage point, uh, 0.3 to four percentage points. So we're really starting to see that divergence. And I think that will continue while restrictions are obviously in place in, in Victoria. What we don't want to see is that to become disorderly. And that, that that's the problem really the government has is if we're going to be managing a higher than average unemployment rate for the next few years, uh, where people's incomes are under pressure, we need to support those people because we don't want this to to roll into some sort of uh, dislocation in the in the housing market where people won't be able to pay their home loans and then that gets disorderly because there's four sales in the market and we all know that you know, the real declines in house prices would come if there's forced selling into a weak market and as long as that isn't the case you know I think house prices. Uh, and their declines are manageable. But if we see the opposite case, then then things start to get ugly. And that's that real aggressive house price crash scenario that that a lot of people sort of paint as a sort of a, a possibility in the Australian context. I think governments and the central bank will be doing everything to stop that from happening. Well, that would indicate the budget would have to be very different this time. It would have to be more than just tax cuts and infrastructure. It would have to build, as Scott Morrison would put it, a bridge to the other side. Well, that's right. Um, you know, I, I think any... Any talk of near-term you know, moves to surpluses are, are, are certainly premature. Uh, you know, we have a conservative government that is conservative fiscally. I, I think that that talk needs to, uh, you know, be put aside because you know, the, the the Reserve Bank itself has the unemployment rate at six and a half percent by the end of 2022. But in the interim, we have the Reserve Bank forecasting an unemployment rate of 10% by the end of this year. And, and what that means in, in you know, we, we talk about rates, but what that actually means is right now on the, on the data that we have, we have a million people officially unemployed. What the Reserve Bank's saying by forecasting an unemployment rate of 10% is there's going to be 300,000 more people losing their jobs. That's what a 10% unemployment rate means. And then we factor in all those people that are still dislocated in, in the labour market. You know, they've been stood down and working zero hours. And then those that have fallen out of the labour market with the decline in participation. So we've got an unemployment rate that will be 12 to 13% when you measure it with with all those other factors put in. So simply for the government, it means that they need to keep support in place. You know, they can't really afford, as they've done, tinkering around the edges with JobKeeper and JobSeeker and reducing the amount that people are getting. That's, that's I think that's risky in terms of not allowing these people to have that certainty that they'll be able to, you know, meet their obligations in terms of their, their mortgage in particular, but for some people also that's just rent as well. So, you know, I think the, the government's going to be in a situation where it is is still supporting the economy for an extended period of time. And then it can talk about things like stimulus, which is more, more tax cuts uh, over an extended period of time. But they'll need labour market income support in place for an extended period of time. And then household tax cuts might be aimed at that lower income cohort in order to add support. So I don't think that will add stimulus. I don't think people are really going to be out spending their tax cut should they get one, but they can repair their balance sheet, pay down debt. You know, that's what we've seen in all the confidence surveys that people are really aggressively trying to pay down their debt. They're getting a transfer payment from the government, government stimulus, the ABS keeps telling us people are paying down their debt, they're saving that or they're spending it on their on their bills, on the utility bills and things like that. They're not really going out and spending up. They don't have the confidence to do that. They still think the outlook is very clouded. So I think that really will be how the, 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 the government has to place their budget when it, when it comes out in October. Well, we'll watch that with great interest. And Alex, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it, Leo. So what's happening in the news? Well, New Zealand has become the first country in the world to make climate risk reporting mandatory for banks, asset managers and insurers. Under new legislation, 
announced on Tuesday morning, large financial institutions would be required to report annually on governance, risk management and strategies for mitigating climate change impacts. The country's Minister for Climate Change, James Shaw, said the mandatory disclosure requirements, which are based on the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure framework, would be the first of their kind in the world. Australia, Canada, UK, France, Japan and the European Union are all working towards some form of climate risk reporting for companies, but New Zealand is moving ahead of them by making disclosures about climate risk mandatory across the financial system, he said. The requirement will apply to around 200 institutions, including banks and institutional investors, with more than New Zealand $1 billion, that's $920 million Aussie, in assets, and insurers with either $1 billion in assets or annual premium income of more than $250 New Zealand. The new regime requires parliamentary approval and would not come into force until 2023. And the chief executive of the world's largest vaccine manufacturer has warned that not enough COVID-19 vaccines will be available for everyone in the world to be inoculated until the end of 2024 at the earliest. Adar Punawala, chief executive of the Serum Institute of India, told the Financial Times that pharmaceutical companies were not increasing production capacity quickly enough to vaccinate the global population in less time. It's going to take four to five years until everyone gets a vaccine on this planet, said Mr Punawala, who estimated that if the COVID-19 shot is a two-dose vaccine, such as measles or rotavirus, the world will need 15 billion doses. And the Westpac Chamber actual composite improved to 42.4 in the September quarter after falling dramatically to 24 in the June quarter, associated with the initial lockdown in response to COVID. The index remains well below its pre-COVID level of 56 at the end of 2019. With the activity index still sub-50, this suggests conditions are contracting, but a much slower rate. Of note, new orders and output are declining at a slower pace. And reversing job seeker, youth allowance and parenting payment supplements could see the economy lose $31.3 billion and 145,000 full-time jobs over the next two years, analysis by Deloitte Access Economics shows. Commissioned by the Australian Council of Social Service, the analysis is based on the government trimming the coronavirus supplement of $550 per fortnight to $250 per fortnight on September the 24th, and even further removing it completely on December the 31st. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has promised the payment would not be entirely removed after December. However, he has not yet revealed the level at which the payments will continue. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has detailed plans to open up new gas reserves and offer to back the construction of a gas-fired power station as part of his plan to drive a fossil fuel-led economic recovery. In a speech to business and industry in Newcastle, Morrison announced federal government support for a gas plant in the New South Wales Hunter Valley if energy company AGL does not replace its Liddell coal-fired power station. The headline-grabbing policy announcement was a threat to the energy industry to commit to delivering 1,000 megawatts of new dispatchable power generation due to replace the ageing Liddell power station by the summer of 2023-24 or else the federal government will have the Commonwealth-owned Snowy Hydro Company build a new gas-fired power plant itself. So once again, the party of the free market decided the market could use a little prod in the direction they'd prefer. He also announced initial funding of $52.9 million to support planning for five new gas fields and pipelines to transport gas to Australian cities. The move comes despite growing scientific evidence around fugitive emissions that indicates the carbon footprint of gas is much larger than previously thought. And the Victorian government has announced a coronavirus business support package worth about $3 billion, which Premier Daniel Andrews calls the biggest package of business support the state has ever seen. The package includes more than $1.1 billion in cash grants for small and medium-sized businesses. 
The government will establish a fund offering grants of up to $30,000 to licensed bars, restaurants, pubs, clubs and hotels. The Victorian economy has been hit hard by the state's extended lockdown during the second wave, with anticipation there will be soon be more Victorians on JobKeeper than the rest of the country combined. Businesses have mounted a campaign to, for industry to reopen sooner than the current roadmap out of restrictions allows. And Victoria will transform city and suburban streets into pop-up cafes and restaurants to speed up the hospitality industry's recovery as the state announces an additional $190 million of support to sole traders. In the lead-up to summer, the Premier, Daniel Andrews, said Melbourne footpaths, car parks and public parks will be given over for outdoor seating as part of our $100 million investment into the CBD. The changes will allow venues to seat more people while still complying with COVID-safe restrictions. Of the $100 million support package for the Melbourne CBD, $30 million will be available for small and medium-sized businesses to purchase outdoor dining equipment with a maximum of $5,000 per business. Another $30 million will support COVID-safe cultural events to attract Melburnians back to the CBD. And another $40 million will go towards physical upgrades such as widening footpaths. Other local government areas will be encouraged to do the same, transforming suburban shopping strips to allow alfresco seating. Hospitality and businesses outside the CBD will receive an $87.5 million outdoors dining support package, $58 million of which can go to purchasing outdoor equipment. And former Prime Minister Paul Keating says the ballooning cost of aged care should be met by a HEC-style funding model where every Australian is extended a loan to pay for their care and the costs are recovered from their estate. The model, which has been cautiously welcomed by peak seniors groups, would reduce the fiscal burden on a younger generation already carrying the costs of the coronavirus pandemic. Each person's assets would help to maintain them in later life, and it would be more difficult for family members to call on those assets. And China's investment in Australia dropped by more than 47% between 2008 and 19. New data released by the Australian National University shows China's investment in Australia peaked at $15.8 billion in 2016, but was just $2.5 billion last year, and is expected to drop again in 2020. A single investment, the sale of Bellamy's baby formula company to Chinese dairy company China Mengu made up more than half of the total investment at $1.5 billion. And the $70 billion JobKeeper wage subsidy program has potentially been rorted by thousands of businesses, but not one has been penalised despite more than 8,000 tip-offs to the tax office and 2,200 employees found to be on multiple applications for payments. JobKeeper began on March 30 and until August 26, more than 15,000 businesses have been removed from the scheme after the Australian Tax Office found them to be ineligible. During the same period, the ATO received 8,000 tips from the public pointing to 6,250 businesses or sole traders who may have been rorting the system. The ATO has told more than 8,000 businesses they may need to repay JobKeeper money because their paperwork did not adequately demonstrate their eligibility. To get onto JobKeeper, employers and sole traders estimate their turnover has or will likely fall by 30% or more if turnover is $1 to $1 billion. For bigger firms, a drop of 50% or more is needed. Businesses are expected to provide evidence of revenue declines. The most common JobKeeper tiff-offs so far have been allegations that employers are not passing on the full $1,500, or businesses are not meeting the turnover requirements to get into the program, or fair work issues such as not paying penalty rates, and employee eligibility. Money has been flowing to more than 3.5 million people via businesses covering about one-third of the pre-pandemic private sector, but concerns about where the money is going are growing.
Questions have been raised about the use of government support during the pandemic, with at least 25 companies in the ASX 300 paying bonuses worth $24 million to executives and millions more in dividends to shareholders after claiming JobKeeper. Company profits were up 14.9% in the June quarter, while wages and salaries fell by a record 2.5%. The ATO warned businesses in June that employers found to have knowingly rorted the system may face fines of up to $126,000, or 10 years in prison. But no one has been pinged yet. And from homewares and appliances to gardening and sports equipment, retailers are struggling to fill gaps on shelves after underestimating the strength of consumer demand amid ongoing supply chain disruptions. While clothing and footwear retailers such as Meyer and David Jones have been discounting heavily to clear excess supplies of office wear and cocktail dresses, retailers such as Kmart, Big W, Bunnings, JB Hi-Fi and Super Retail Group are missing out on millions of dollars in sales after failing to secure sufficient stock to keep up with booming demand from consumers spending more time at home. According to the Australian Retailers Association, 90% of its members are experiencing stock or supply chain disruptions due to the coronavirus. According to a report by UBS, like-for-like sales for discretionary retails rose an unprecedented 29% in July and August, after bumper sales between March and June. Sales at JB Hi-Fi and Good Guys rose more than 40% in July, and Harvey Norman's Australian franchisee sales were up 38% in July and August. Super Retail Group's rebel chain has struggled to source weights from anywhere in the world after unprecedented demand from consumers forced to exercise at home. JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman have run short of large-screen TVs, while Kmart and Big W have been short of stocks such as kitchenware, small appliances, home decor products and Manchester for several months. And Kogan.com has reported its largest increase in active customers in the history of the business through August, with sales and profit also rising substantially. The company reported active customers grew by 152,000 in August to 2.46 million as at August 31st. It also reported gross sales were up more than 117% on the previous year, while gross profit was up more than 165%. And the country's most secretive intelligence agency has launched a recruitment push for more digital spies as Australia encounters a growing threat of espionage. For its first 20 years, the government denied its existence. Now, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service is openly looking for more recruits. Australia's overseas spy agency wants to find highly skilled digital experts to fill a number of critical roles in the organisation. The ASUS is Interested campaign will feature a new television advertisement and focus on finding Australians trained in IT, software development, data science, engineering, cyber security and customer service. The TV ad shows an ASUS agent uncovering a system vulnerability in a computer network and then quickly installing a security update to fend off would-be hackers. If you're currently working in technology, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service is interested in hiring you, the ad says. And Macquarie Group has flagged a 35% drop in earnings for the first half and said its overall profitability for the full year is uncertain. The investment bank said on Monday that it expects its first half of the result to be down about 35% in the first half of the prior year and down about 25% on the second half of fiscal year 2020. This would see half-yearly profit fall from $1.275 billion to about $555 million. The bank scrapped its guidance for the first time since the global financial crisis in July ahead of its annual general meeting. The company is scheduled to report its first half results on November the 6th. And Rio Tinto chairman Simon Thompson has vowed to continue bringing more jobs to Australia. It comes amid calls for the company to relocate its global headquarters from London to Australia, which currently accounts for 90% of the company's profits, as well as the bulk of its workforce. Rio Tinto CEO Jean-Sebastien Jacques 
and two top executives resigned last week after the desecration of an Aboriginal site which saw the destruction of a Dukang Gorge rock shelter against the wishes of its traditional owners. This coincides with the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg telling Thompson that the company's next chief executive should be Australian along with the majority of its directors. The Federal Treasurer's ability to directly enforce conditions on Rio is limited, but its board and investors will be aware of the problems that could be created by ignoring his call for an Australian CEO. And people are turning to comfort food in the lockdowns. The maker of old El Paso Mexican food products, Latino Fresh Pasta, Betty Crocker Cake Mixes and haagen Ice Cream has had 15% sales spike in Victoria during the lockdowns over the past few weeks. The Australian arm of US food giant General Mills also says demand for comfort food is staying elevated in other states, with sales up 4% in Queensland and South Australia, where a shift towards more home cooking continues. Major Australian banks and insurers on Monday published the nation's first comprehensive climate change reporting framework, preempting threats from the Prudential Regulator APRA to make such disclosure mandatory. Bushfires, tropical cyclones, coastal inundation, heat waves, and more are included in the new standards, which provide a scientific framework within which to assess the emerging risks that come with a warming atmosphere and oceans. The guidelines were published by the Climate Measurement Standards Initiative, a collaboration between major banks, insurers and climate scientists. They flesh out the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Guidelines in a way that is specific to Australia's geography. The initiative was started by National Australia Bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Westpac, Suncor, QBE, IAG, the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and research universities. But any financial institutions can use the guidelines. And Louis Vuitton plans to sell a face shield with its signature LV monogram pattern. The French fashion house unveiled the full face shield as part of its 2021 cruise collection. And it will go on sale late next month for US $961, that's Aussie $1,320. A news release describes it as an eye-catching headpiece, both stylish and protective. It will be photochromatic and can transition from clear to dark when it comes into contact with direct sunlight. The shield can also turn into a hat when the visor is flipped up. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Amar Goel, founder and CEO of Safeta. Safeta is a mobile app-based technology that enables employers bring their employees back to work safely. It is offering many of its features for free to help people be safe and get the economy going again. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 